Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Intersections. Our aspiration in this one-hour webcast is to invite us to explore the highest in human potential. What is it if you and I were able to pursue that path to the peak of who it is that we can be? And in doing so, along the way, find boundaries dissolving, boundaries between inner and outer, between East and West, between profit and purpose, between science and spirituality, and all of these other kinds of ways in which we've at times in a limited way, confined ourselves to just like certain boxes in the pursuit of truth in, in the world. And um, today I have with us um, a topic and a guest that I'm just so delighted to present. Over the course of the last about year and a half, as we have all been stricken by the pandemic all through, you know, all across the world, I have been really pained to witness either through just conversations with loved ones, as well as through articles in the press, the level of loneliness and the struggle with loneliness that uh, so many of us have been talking about and dealing with. And in that regard, while on the one hand, there is science to show that loneliness is an affliction, it is something that, um, you know, is, is in some ways a, like a disease, you know, it can have physical and mental impact on us in a, in a not very positive way. At the same time, I know, you know, I know from certain other very kindred spirits and people I've had in my circle, and to an extent with small glimpses in my own career and life, that there's also a lot of power to, if you want to call it solitude, something that um, is associated with loneliness, but, but, but perhaps um, approaches it from a very different vantage point. And so to that end, after a whole flurry of publicity around the struggles that everyone from children to um, individuals were having with loneliness and this social isolation, quarantine-based kind of phase of life that we've gone through, I came across this article in the New York Times on what we can learn from solitude. And it featured in particular uh, two individuals, you know, Karen and Paul Fredette, who had chosen of their own volition to actually amplify the level of solitude in their lives as opposed to striving to always dial it down and bring more people and human connection in their lives from the outside all the time. And um, my heart in many ways burst with joy that the mainstream media was starting to recognize the possibilities in that. I also started to um, feel very drawn to like, who are these people? Who is Karen? You know, because her voice was very active in that in that article. And what can I learn uh, more about this practice of solitude through their own path and journey? And so as um, I before just I introduce Karen to you uh, myself, let me take a moment here to give you a little bit more about her background. Karen is a contemporary, what you might call a hermit, and also a former nun. She, along with her husband, Paul, has moved to the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina for the last couple of decades, where they've built their life in the lap of nature. She has been a trusted voice and guide uh, for others who've also been striving to move beyond community life to, by choice, pursue this path of communion with nature, of solitude, of prayer, and a deeper connection with their own self. During this pandemic, uh, both she and her husband, Paul, have counseled and supported others who've also been struggling with isolation, or who have been struggling with isolation. I shouldn't say also, because in their case, they have, you can see, you know, Karen will talk to us a little bit about her struggles, but mostly her flourishing as well. In, in isolation. This is the New York Times article I mentioned that uh, I encourage you to read. I sent it out as part of the invite for this conversation today. And in the last about 25 years, they've also overseen a social network 
for other people of their ilk who uh, seek to be hermits, who seek to be hermit curious, who are drawn to this idea of an escape from civilization more into nature. Raven's Bread Ministries is their social network, food for those in solitude. They are also authors of a quarterly newsletter and offer mentorship support and retreats to others who seek solitude. Some of you may be drawn to these resources that they have available for us. And she's also written very inspiring books on the power of solitude. For example, Where God is Ever Found, uh, Where God Begins to Be. Compelling, compelling titles. What lies uh, at the next level of, of uh, double clicking on these? You know, that's the conversation we want to have with her today. She's been featured in, you know, some leading media, both at the local and national levels. And here's a, here's a quote from her that I want to sort of end this little introduction with. You have just to sit down and be with it. You'll discover that there is life within you and there is life around you. And it is teaching you all sorts of things if you are listening. On that note, let me um, welcome Karen into our midst. Karen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be asked to join and to talk with you about these topics that are really part of my life and um, over which I've spent, I guess, all my life learning more and more about the values of solitude, silence, simplicity of life, the... Um, one thing you mentioned, and you used the word isolation, and I think it's important for us to know that there is a difference between the word solitude and isolation. It's the connotation that goes with isolation. I, I think of some friends of mine who are inmates in prison, and they're punished by being put into isolation, and they suffer from it. And then there are other friends of mine who have chosen to be alone, to be in solitude. And I think we go through our life learning more and more about that aloneness and loneliness are part of the human life. It's there for us to in, not just endure, but to learn from, to learn through, so that instead of trying to avoid be feeling lonely, as our culture makes known to us that we should. We, Paul and I were very upset when we saw an article in a magazine that AARP that showed, that suggested that loneliness should be, is an illness that should be treated by drugs. <laughs> and that made no sense to me. So what we're trying to talk about today, I think, is how to make good use of loneliness and to embrace it as if so that we can move through it. You can't just will it away. You've got to become very aware of how lonely you are and accept that state of being as part of your life at that moment. I spent 30 years in a monastery, and then when I moved into solitude, I had a three-month practice period, and I was keeping a journal, and I wrote in my book, Where God Begins to Be, about my experience of these first three months. And I said, during these three months of my initial trial period, I lived in almost complete solitude often having contact with other human beings only at a Sunday liturgy. I did not have a car, no phone, 
not even a mailbox. A kindly neighbor would pick up my mail at the post office and drop it off at this little hermitage, which where I had very few furnishings and very few resources to brighten the place up. At the age of 47, I was totally alone for the first time in my life. For many months, I had struggled actively to get permission to live this hermit life. But when I finally achieved it, my goal of frightening emptiness yawned before me. One day, I crouched before my makeshift altar, feeling vulnerable and lost. Nothing seemed either real or right. So I took refuge in the concrete sensations of that moment. I felt my breath going in and out, my heart beating, my legs beginning to cramp. Shifting to a sitting position, I focused on a flickering candle. I was awash with emotions of loss and grief, guilt and anxiety. I yearned to be comforted and assured that I had made a right decision. Instead, depression engulfed me. But some instinctive wisdom recognized that I should have expected this, that moving into solitude would be like embarking on a sea journey at night in a leaky rowboat without oars or a tiller. I would be at the mercy of the wind, the waves, and the dark. Forming this image helped me to clarify the strangeness that was enveloping me at that moment. If I were on a foggy sea, it behooved me to at least plug the leaks in my frail craft. This meant recognizing my losses, accepting my grief, and praying out of my sadness. So even though I had a long experience with a prayer life, it um, required renewal when I moved into actual solitude as a hermit. Thank you for starting us off on such a powerful note. There's so much uh, to unpack in what you've just shared. You know, you started off by just cautioning us about the use of language, you know, because uh, as I've also learned, in the very words we use, there is encoded, you know, certain assumptions. And there are certain associations we have through our lived experience with uh, what emotions and feelings that word connotes to us. And uh, I think you're cautioning us that word like isolation you know, just comes with a lot of baggage. <laughs> you know, a, word, a word like silence or solitude perhaps has a more uplifting, elevating quality to it. There's, there's someone I have been mentored uh, so, so actively by in, in my work on human potential, Dr. David Burns. He's a cognitive behavior therapist uh, out of Stanford and um, a really remarkable soul. And, you know, he, he's, he's taught me as well how even just in our everyday life, uh, this uh, agency that we have over choosing our words in a mindful way, rather than just uh, absorbing them from the social milieu and, you know, the words that are being used in, in, in the media is, is such an important transformative force in allowing us then to have the right emotional life, you know, in, in what we do as well. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. And, and then, um, boy, that sounds like such a powerful journey that you've gone through all those years of monastic life the choice to then move on from it. And then in that point, you know, needing to go back and rejuvenate and reinvigorate yourself because the challenge came again to you. One might even ask like, yes, you're right, that if you're in a leaky boat with the, the fog and around you in the ocean, you'd want to plug those leaks. But on the other hand, you chose to go on that voyage. <laughs> so what forces compelled and 
drove you of your own volition to go on on that path? Maybe we can start there. Maybe we can start with having you just share with us, Karen, as you were growing up, what was that spark in you? What were the shaping influences of you that drew you towards more of a hermit-like life, you know, initially within the monastery and then beyond? Well, I grew up in a very Roman Catholic family and attended 12 years of Catholic schooling, which always included re- religious teachings. And I, was beca- I realized that I admired the, the religious women, the nuns, the sisters, but I didn't want to be involved in, in an apostolate, as we called it in those days. I was much more attracted to the, the cloistered groups where prayer was the uh, essential purpose of why we had gathered and it was during those 30 years of years of in the monastery that i dealt a great deal with loneliness and it took me a quite a while to realize that you can be lonely in the midst of 18 other sisters and largely it took me more than a year more than 25 years to actually work my way through that loneliness but I had to do it consciously. I couldn't just try to avoid it. I had to name it, express it. And one of the ways of working with it was by journaling, by writing down how I was feeling and why I was feeling what I was feeling. I trust feelings. As I've, some writers have said, feelings don't lie. You can, you can refuse to listen to them, You can refuse to name them as your own, but they're there. And one way to work our way through loneliness is by accepting where you are right then, what you are feeling, where you want to go, but seem unable to get there. So it's possible to be, and I think a lot of people have experienced this, to be very lonely in the midst of a lot of people. Uh, I've read articles about people walking down the streets of New York City and feeling very lonely in the crowd. And I think part of our loneliness can be we don't have a companion that enters into our feelings along with us. So we have to either search for that companion or try to get a better idea of who we are most missing. And in the process of journaling, I discovered that The person I was most missing was myself. I wasn't really in touch with myself, and that contributed a great deal to the sense of loneliness that I had. I believe that we are all inspired, held up by the divine, but the divine speaks to us through our deepest self. And if we're running away from our deepest self, we are going to just remain lonely. It reminds me of a um, Abraham Lincoln's life. He was going through a lot of crisis as uh, as president, and um, he wasn't very popular on either side for a while because, of course, the South wasn't happy with what uh, he was doing, and even in the North, people got fatigued from the war and all the losses um, of lives and everything, and um, wanted to you know get it to an end. And he he wanted to take it to the finish line in a way that could help heal the country, you know, redeem it from slavery, etc. Uh, so at one point he said, he said, I would like to run the affairs of the state so that if at the end I do not have any other friend left, I will at least have that one friend who is deep down within me. 
Yes. And uh, you said it so beautifully that uh, it is your company of your own self, your connection with your own self. And it is through that that the divine sometimes will speak to us. And it yes. is more in the language of feelings, not as much at times logical words, I hear you say. One of the things, Karen, on that one, if we may we kind of explore that for a minute, the landscape of feelings is, um, it appears to me, this is a hypothesis, I place it in your hands to see how it relates to your experience, that in modern times, we tend to uh, conflate two things. One is the emotional surges we might get from time to time, and then these deeper, more subtler, intuitive stirrings that you're calling feelings. And so therefore, when we conflate them, we get into this mode where people feel sometimes that they need to follow every emotional urge or surge that comes to them because that's what they're feeling. Since we unfortunately, you know, use the word feeling in, in both those areas. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling very, you know, captivated by this experience or individual or, or intoxicant or whatever it might be. But that's not the same feeling of what you're saying is feeling, isn't it? No, no. I'm talking about naming what is bothering me, not what's coming at me from outside, except in as how I react to it. And reacting is never a, a good way to guide your life. It, um, you end up running in directions you don't really need to go in or should go in. The feelings I'm talking about are the naming the deeper underlying emotions that are there that we don't often want to name because to the, they're often dark. They're, they're often less than totally uplifting. And we realize like I did in that little piece I read, I was feeling very depressed. I had just accomplished a great goal, but the actual emotion and feeling about trying to live it out now was depression. And I, I had to write that out. I had to say, why do I feel depressed? What's going on? And part of it was fear. I was afraid of where I was. I was feeling very vulnerable. And I came across a little sentence in a book by um, a writer who was writing about the value of retreats. And she was saying this, she says, about her hermitage. But here, where I feel safe, I'm learning to be present. And I believe that we all have to have a feeling, a certain degree of safety before we can even embrace the present moment in which we are living. When I first moved into hermit life, I was sitting in prayer and it was the end of the summer. I knew I would have to get wood in for the wood stove about which I knew nothing. And I was just terrified. I said, where will I, I don't have enough income, enough money. How will I make it through the winter? And it was like, I heard deep within me a voice which said, well, do you have enough to eat today? And I said, yes. Actually, I said, yes, Lord. And do you actually have enough in the house to eat also tomorrow? And I could, I said, yes. And it's like, well, what more do you need? You can't even live tomorrow, today. You are okay today. Your needs are all met. And this is where the feeling of safety comes in. And I found my safety in the sense of, that I was being cared for and provided for. Most of my family and friends did not think that, that what I was doing was a good idea, but 
the one who mattered most to me said, I will provide. That's an echo from what we find in the Bible many times. Yeah, I get goosebumps just hearing that story. And what a powerful logic, what a powerful logic. Do you have enough to eat today? Do you have enough to eat tomorrow? What more do you need? You cannot even, what did you say, live tomorrow today? Or you cannot even eat tomorrow's bread today? Or Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And you talk about the linkages that has to teachings in the Bible coming from India. I can tell you that at the very, very center of uh, the uh, scriptures of, of India lies the Gita and the main message of the Gita is, is non-attachment, non-attachment, to live without attachment, live with surrender in some ways. Do your best, do your best, but then surrender the fruits of your labor <laughs> uh, to some divine hand. And uh, one hears about that in concept and one strives in simple mortal ways to kind of do it in one's life, but you took it to a very heroic level to be able to surrender to that extent. Do you find... Um, that in that pursuit, when you put yourself so much at that sort of edge of what, you know, many or all of us might be able to open ourselves up to, that it makes you at times test the limits of your faith and the depth of your faith and moments where there are, I don't know, like dark nights of the soul or a faith crisis or something because, because you push yourself, you know, beyond what most, most of us do in our own little comfort zones. Yeah, you're, you're very right. It reminds me of a, of a quotation that I used early in that same book that I quoted from, Where God Begins to Be. And the quotation was, was from Patrick Overton. And it's, it sustained me. It still does. And it goes like this. When you come to the edge of all the light that you have and are about to take that step into the darkness, faith is knowing that one of two things will happen. Either you will find solid ground beneath your feet, or you will be taught to fly. And that is an expression of how I'm being sustained even to this day. It's um, more often than not, I am taught to put my foot beyond the, the light that I have into the darkness and trust that I will be provided for. And I have been. Yeah. You know, that, that quote was was powerful. It immediately triggered a memory in me of how several years ago, I was uh, with my wife and daughter at Yosemite National Park. And, you know, we had, we had dined at uh, one of the hotels inside the valley. And now it was time to return to our cabin. And we had a car parked um, quite a distance away. There was a shuttle that had brought us to the hotel. And then we just realized that actually the shuttles had stopped running because it was that late. So we had to have me walk to get to the car. And I decided to take a shortcut instead of going down the actual roadway, which was paved with lights. I went through the thicket of woods that would get me to the other side, assuming this is, this is a tame and well-organized national park, so everything will be fine. But as I started to go through that shortcut like path in the middle of the night, suddenly I realized that it's getting darker and darker. And at some point, there was literally just no way to see, except that in the distant horizon, I could see small little lights, which were guiding me as to where I needed to go, you know, where I knew my car was. But aside from that distant light, the actual next three feet, you know, of the journey, I, I really couldn't see much. And, uh, and I went through this first moment of insecurity and, and to an extent of some fear. But then... I have, in some ways, in those days, I've never felt closer to God than I did in that moment because I realized, like, I have to completely surrender. <laughs> you know, I have to completely surrender to higher force to pave the way for me to have a safe passage from here to the other side. 
And mm-hmm. it, became, it became almost like thrilling in some ways to experience that little bit of surrender and completely on faith, allow the uh, nature and the divine force to sort of like just protect and guide me. Who knew what kinds of wild animals or muddy passages or holes or branches that I might stumble on might be along the way. But, you know, I made it, of course, to the other side. And it's a memory that I hold on to in a very special way in my heart. Yeah. It, it, um, I know when I was living in West Virginia, I was down in a dark valley. It was ca- we called them a holler, and there were no street lights down there. And um, so you always, if, if you had to walk out at night, you always had your flashlight. And walking with a flashlight requires not that you wave it around above you to see what's around you. You have to focus it right on the ground at your feet. And all you can see is that one little circle of light where you can put your foot for the next time and only after you've taken that step the light moves forward and you see where to put your foot for the next step and i've always felt that that was a true image of walking in god's guidance and that you often will not see what's coming until it's there and you have to simply trust trust is a very strong word when you're talking about living in solitude and yeah. it, you know it's and it's trust that gives you a sense of safety which as that one writer said allowed her to move into the state of living in the present and living in the present moment is exceedingly important to give us move us out of feeling isolated and into this position of solitude solitude is a good place to be. You may still be alone, but you're not lonely like you're missing something. It is okay. And it takes a long time. And and it keeps, I keep slipping out of it. And I have to keep going back to the present moment. And when I do spiritual direction with people, I realize that one of the most important things I say to everyone, no matter where they are, is be present where you are. Don't be projecting into the future. Don't be regretting the past. Be here and now and feel it. And in doing that, you will find the holy. You will find the divine who is keeping you alive, who is informing your whole being and is opening your eyes to even greater wonders all around you. So beautiful, Karen. Every phrase, every sentence uh, one wants to latch on to, hold on to, internalize. Uh, I'm sure many of our friends here in the audience, just like me, is going to want to come back and uh, re-experience this conversation with you and learn learn even more as we uh, savor these ideas. The monastery that you became a part of, the nun order, uh, is um, associated with St. Clair. Correct. And St. Francis. And St. Francis, mm-hmm. two such beautiful lights in the in the Christian tradition. Who, even those of us who are not formally Catholic or Christian, uh, we we borrow from and we get inspiration from. I remember, I think I was mentioning to you, Karen, how as we were growing up, as my daughter was growing up, we had a picture book, uh, you know, of the story of St. Francis and also St. Clair, and it was. Uh, so inspiring, not just for her, but for her parents as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, if you can, if you can shed some light on what is your day-to-day life like today, and how has it changed over the years as you've spent more and more, invested more and more in this life? Perhaps maybe based on the learnings uh, that you had, or, or what adjust, adjustments have you made to get to get the most from it, the most fulfillment from it? Well, I think 
her question is, is, is so good because it implies that you're always moving on. You're, you know, where, um, for instance, let me say, the, I was married to Paul in 1996, and our marriage has developed. We just celebrated 25, the 25th anniversary. And the relationship that we have has changed over the years. It's grown deeper. It's grown more accepting. And when it comes to living out the life of prayer, solitude is a means, not an end either. It's a means to make us realize the depth of everything that is around us. Most recently, I've been reading some books about trees. Uh, the um, I think many of you may have been fam are familiar with the book The Hidden Language of Trees, written by a man in Germany who looked after a forest, birch forest, beech forest. And he was one of the first to bring out that the trees communicate with one another. They look after one another. And we're surrounded by trees where we are here. It's a, it is a rainforest and there are many trees and the small ones and huge ones. And another tree book I read, which has just come out in the past year, is called Looking for the Mother Tree. And this is a science, this was written about scientific experiments done up in British Canada, British Columbia. And the author explains her process of discovery of how the trees care for one another, nourish one another. And I began to realize that by living in this rainforest, I'm being nourished. I wasn't nearly so aware of that when I first moved here. And when you realize that there is healing, healing light, healing love, healing grace emanating from all this green growth around me, I am being healed. And I'm being given something to pass on to others. Paul and I, during the pandemic, we continued our newsletter, but we also did some videos, which we put up on YouTube, short ones, 15 minutes, trying to just provide a thought or two that would help people remain steady and not so fearful. And I could feel the life that is being given me, even from this forest, flowing out to others. And the emails we got back from them were so encouraging, so that they somehow had felt what uh, we were trying to, even unknowingly, offer to them. So this, this life is, for me, an experience of the holy an experience of the divine, which is continually growing. And I go from, well, if that's the life in these trees, it is also the life within my own body, my own spirit. It's all, it's all one, and it is all the holy. That is so beautiful, Karen. Thank you, Novik. There's one that I, I had read uh, a, a couple of decades ago, uh, maybe three decades ago, on a very similar theme. It was called The Secret Life of Plants, and uh, very eye-opening again as well in making i mean it just humbles you isn't it you know you you, you feel you are in some way superior <laughs> you know as a species <laughs> then suddenly you realize oh my god there's such intelligence such purity such vibrancy in the lives of these things they don't move as fast as we do but they're emoting they're connecting they're doing things i'm sitting here and i'm glancing out the window at a huge tree that over the years my husband and i have called grandfather walnut 
And it's one of the probably few original trees left here. Most of this forest is second growth, but grandfather walnut is truly a mother tree. And there are walnut, black walnut trees all around us because sons and daughters of the mother tree. Yeah, I just love this idea of these older trees mothering the, the younger ones and then the younger ones also helping support them in, in, in their in their aging mm-hmm. years. Yeah, yeah. How, how beautiful. How beautiful. What else have you uncovered in your uh, intimacy with nature? You know, so many of us are living very urban and sort of, uh, yeah, just very highly developed existences in a more the midst of concrete and we have our little parks and we go to the parks feel a little bit you know of that like oh wow you know the power of nature but then we escape back into our concrete so when you have so fully opened yourself up to this life to surrendering and communing with nature what are what are some other insights you received or the benefits you received from from being being so connected with nature First of all, let, let's just say that we really have to keep ourselves open to all the periods of solitude that we can find, whether we're, as you said, in the city or living in the country. But it is only when our soul is quiet in solitude that we will be able to experience the life that is being offered us through trees, through plants, through scenery. We're not trying, we're not trying to avoid the aloneness, but we are embracing it. And one of the important things, in addition, living this close to nature is that nature has rhythms. And we need to open ourselves to those rhythms and go with them. When it's winter time and the leaves are gone and the trees are standing there black and gaunt, um, that's what should be. That's what's needed at that moment. I, I would be silly to be saying, oh, I wish it were summer and everything was covered with green. No, right then, that present moment is where I am meant to be. And this is a lesson of nature. You do go through rhythms. Not everything we experience is going to be totally uplifting. This rhythm of seasons where we can receive more or give more asks us to to dive into the reality that that season represents. Winter has its value. Spring coming gives us a new sense of life growing. Uh, Summer, where everything is in its fullness and its glory, we are still there. I remember telling one young man who came to visit us, and he seemed astonished by this, I said, one of the things you learn when you stay in one place and observe it year round through the rhythms, through the seasons, that green is not the same green even year round. The spring green, which is like chartreuse, the yellow green, the brightness fades a little bit and gets into a deeper, richer green. And then as the season of summer moves along, that green gets slightly smoky looking, slightly bluish. And this young man just said, I never noticed that. And well, he'd never been still enough. He'd never had the opportunity. And perhaps that's one reason why when we're talking with people who look for silence and solitude and living as a hermit, it's a person, it's a second half of life goal. Um, We grow into it. Yeah. Yeah, there are seasons that we absorb within ourselves. We go through our own dark nights, as you mentioned. We go through the 
the times of winter. We go through the times of hope for spring. And so I think each of us has different experiences of solitude, depending on where we are personally in our life, life periods. It, it has so many subtleties to it. I want to read, I want to read uh, a quote uh, from some of your reflections, which really resonated with me. You, you mentioned, uh, yeah, I, I, before I do that, though, let me pause and just say, you've just given us such powerful examples of how nature is in some ways like a school in which we can learn so much about about our own selves by drawing those metaphorical insights about the seasons in our own life and all of that, isn't it? Um, so that that was that was really powerful. I, I remember I was in Botswana some some years back, and it was such a beautiful experience of just being with flora and fauna in their wildest, most unhuman touched kind of form. And and then I, I didn't really want to look for the hunt, you know. I just wanted to look for the flourishing of, of the animals and their herds and the communities. But at one point, uh, we we found a moment where a cheetah just had hunted a deer, and and it was. It was hard, you know, for, for us to see because we, we'd like to see the deer flourish. We'd like to see the cheetah flourish. And then I realized, but the cheetah cannot flourish until from time to time it catches its prey, you know. And, and yes. so nature, nature is bountiful and beautiful and has a very soft heart. But at the same time, somehow this cycle of birth, preservation and death, birth, preservation and death has allowed you and me to be here because past generations had to be in some ways let go of so that a future generation like us can come into being. And so that cycle is, is, is one of those other metaphors that I find very instructive from nature, just to make peace with uh, finiteness and mortality and those things. Yes, I agree with you, you know, fully on that. And there, there is another wonderful book called Seasons of Strength. And it implies that all seasons have a different kind of strength to offer us. I, I haven't really spent a lot of time naming the types of graces, shall we say, that we receive from each each season. But I would certainly mention winter brings out endurance. Uh, spring would bring help to lighten us and give us hope that seeds that had died in the past fall and frozen through the winter are now coming back to life, that the life was always there, but it it could lay dormant for a period, and that was okay. The summer, when we give our all to the back to brother son, as um, St. Francis would say, which draws things out of ourselves that we didn't know we had, perhaps like this experience today in talking with you and listening to your reflections. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Again, such a beautiful metaphor and lesson to learn from, from nature. I'm just enjoying this so much, and... Uh, so grateful that you can bring some of this uh, lived wisdom to us from your own life, uh, from your own life, Karen. So here is the quote that I wanted to read um, from your own writings. Uh, there are two that I, I'll, I'll offer, which um, really resonate deeply with me. Many do, but these two I want to offer up to our audience as well. So this first one, you talk about how at a certain juncture, you said, I struggle to find my personal way within many conflicting interpretations of contemplative life. I did not believe those who claimed that contemplative communities would soon pass out of existence. Nor did I trust the voices which claimed that survival demanded clinging with blind fidelity to every tradition we had received. I love that fusion of opposites in that the um, capacity to a uh, go beyond what uh, the predominant views might be in a certain community or another community to think for yourself 
Uh, and then in that thinking, the recognition that um, there are some enduring truths in the world, including the power of contemplative life. And yet the outer form that they take, if I understand you correct, the outer form might need to change from time to time based on where one is and what one is called to do. That was what was happening within me when after 30 years, I realized I needed to leave the monastery which had been a good place for me to be for that period of time. But I was now being drawn into deeper solitude. And contrary to what most people think, a monastery is not a solitary place. There are, in, you know, there were sisters were around me. We, we prayed together. We ate together. We worked together. We played together. We shared insights together. There, there was very little actual solitude within a monastery. And so I had reached the point where I really needed the real thing, as you might call it. And that's what gave me the courage to know that if I wanted to grow, if there was a new life ahead of me, I needed to move into a new lifestyle. And scary. Oh, yes. You're letting go of all those comfortable forms that had upheld you until now. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that moment must have been like, 30 years in the monastery. Then there is another passage, which I'm guessing, Karen, might be from like the same period, where you talk about it was frightening and I might have dissembled forever had not my mother died in 1987, as well as another woman, an older nun who had been a mentor and a friend to me. Uh, these two women had been models and teachers for me, not so much through their words, although their words of wisdom would be an enduring gift, as through their lives of faith and loyalty. Above all, it had been their belief in me, which, like sunlight, had enabled me to see clearly my own gifts and strengths and trust them. Suddenly, these two women were gone. And at the age of 45, I was left with their mandate to grow into what they always knew I could be. Um, one of those women was um, my abbess for a number of years. And um, she, she was the one who had the courage, and it was courage in those days, to allow me to do something that usually cloistered nuns didn't do, which was to write and to publish. She had been a um, teacher at one point in her life, and she, she said to me, I could not squelch the gifts that I see in you. And her belief in me really did give me the courage to go ahead and start writing a biography of St. Clair took me 10 years because writing a book in a monastery, you don't have hours set aside for writing. And um, so I would be writing it in the evenings after night prayer. And because we couldn't use a typewriter, it was too noisy. At least half of the book was handwritten before it got typed into it, into typed form. But that belief in me, where she saw what I couldn't yet see fully, made all the difference. My mother, though she was involved in raising four children, yet she never interfered with um, what I said I felt I had to do. When it came, when I felt I needed to enter the monastery, leave the family home, she supported me in that. She helped me to make the clothing that I needed to take with me. And um, on my 18th birthday, she brought a birthday cake to the monastery to let me know that the my family was celebrating with my achievement <laughs> of becoming 18. And that belief, you know, that just said, you're, you're, my you're still my daughter, but you're an adult daughter now, and I respect what you're doing. 
I suppose yeah. all, I was just going to say, I, I suppose all of us can look back over our lives and find that there were certain very influential people. And, and their gift to us wasn't so much their words as their belief in us. There was a nun when I was growing up that I had uh, the privilege of um, having some time with over the course of several years from my early teens all the way into my um, mid-twenties in particular and then you know on and off after. But during that period, it was a very formative period of course for me. It was exactly what you just said. It's exactly what you just said. She, every time I would leave her presence after spending some time with her, I would just feel uh, such a high with regard to the possibilities that lay in front of me, with regard to the purity of my own nature, <laughs> with regard to all of the baggage that I was carrying when I was going in to meet with her. I was like, I'm not worthy. I'm so flawed compared to, compared to who she is. All of that would get washed out right, by, by just the power of her affirmation and love for what she saw at my core. And so, so I, I relate very much to what you just said. That's beautiful. I want to take a moment just to share something back with you because I know how fond you are from everything that you've shared about lives of you know, great ones, uh, such as, for example, St. Francis and St. Clair. All right, so we're at uh, the point of closure, Karen. I mean, I, I know that some of the questions here have been more around uh, also, how can, we, how can we be of service to those of us who are feeling lonely, who are feeling isolated today? You have been doing that kind of support and outreach. Any, any kind of like just um, beyond the wonderful inspiration you've already given us, any, any couple, you know, couple of like practical steps or tips that people might take tomorrow as a way to help uh, step a little bit closer to that state of uh, deeper attunement within, deeper communion with nature and an embrace of solitude? Well, I'm just going to go back to the, the wisest thing I've ever heard and it still is the one major form, major thing that helps me continue on this path and reach out to others. And that is being fully alive in the present moment, being fully here. During the pandemic, I could feel, in a sense, the anxiety and the fear of people around the world, people in our own country, even if I wasn't, didn't know their names, it, the impact of what they were feeling would hit us. And it would hit us because we were attentive. We were attentive to how life was unfolding around us at that moment. And some occasional stories in the newspaper, which were some particularly poignant about deaths or so forth, really, really touched me. And I allowed it to. We, we shouldn't try to avoid the pain that goes with being fully alive in the present moment. One of the recent pains was this friend of mine who lives in India. We met at the age of three been communicating by email, and suddenly I heard nothing from her from since last March. And I knew she lived in Pune, and I knew it was a really suffering from COVID there. And I thought, have I lost this friend of 77 years? And um, I just found out the other day from her daughter that she did get COVID, but she is recovering. And it's like this friend who knows me like no one else is still with me. And I, I, I hope everybody has or tries to be a friend. I guess that's the way we find friends. And we allow their lives to impact us, even in a hurtful way, and accept that hurt on their behalf, that it may grow into something that is giving, loving, caring. I'm fortunate that I can share a lot of this with my husband. And we give, we try to give back. But I think we receive more through the newsletter, through the people in our Raven's Bread ministry groups, and in order to receive again. 
We have to be right here and now in the present. Karen, you are uh, you're a real force of nature. Yeah, one could just keep keep going and going. Uh, and yet, um, want to bring this to closure for now. I'm happy that um, you know this conversation with you doesn't have to be, you know, in a sense, like permanently closed for our community uh, here today because because of all the good work you and Paul are doing to offer up your thoughts and counsel uh, through through the Raven's Bread Ministries work, the the newsletter, the books. Um, the videos. And so, my friends, you know, all of us here in the Intersections community, uh, please know that these resources are as available to you as, as anyone else, because there is an inner hermit, you know, in, in all of us waiting to be nurtured and developed. Thank you so much for all the gifts you've given us today. You know, I wish you Godspeed in the journey ahead. And I look forward very much to staying in touch. And if we can be of service to you at any time, me, my team at Mentora, yeah, we, we would be honored. 